0: Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. Claudius was a Roman emperor, and from memory he was... In power from around 41 to 52 AD or thereabouts. And of course he is a type of all antichrists. And due to his suspicions concerning Jewry. He would force this Roman couple Priscilla and Aquila out of Rome. And normally when somebody gets pushed out of a town or a city. Blessings follow. For example... If you go back to the Old Testament, you get a picture of Jacob and Esau. And uh, Jacob would deceive his brother over the birthright. And Esau was infuriated by this. And the Word of God tells us how Jacob's parents were so concerned about this, especially his mother, that she told him to go back to her brother's home. So Jacob would disappear. And he would spend, I think, 14 years or thereabouts with his uncle, And uh, he was there for a long time. And during those years, the Lord was molding him. And he would leave that land with two wives, many children, and some concubines as well. And of course, you know Jacob would later become Israel. Those years were tough years for Jacob. He was forced out, as I say, due to his brother's desire to kill him. And here, Claudius, no fan of the Jews, has pushed Priscilla and Aquila out. And this couple saved Jews, of course, from Rome will become great friends with the Apostle Paul. But also of interest to me is verse 1, how we read that Paul departed from Athens to Corinth. Now today we have what's called air miles. And if you travel from A to B, if you are a regular traveller, you receive air miles. And just think for a moment what air miles Paul would have received, had they existed in his day. And this got me thinking this morning that if you were to appraise Paul, Paul would write... Let's give him 14 epistles. Let's give him Hebrews. Let's say Paul was around 30 when he got saved. Or 35, thereabouts. Let's say he was in full-time ministry for 35 years. I think it's fair to say that most people would uh, be of the opinion that he died around the time of Nero's reign. He certainly died before Titus came into power and destroyed Jerusalem. So let's give Paul 35 years in full-time service. Let's say he's in his 30s, and he dies pre-70. Over 35 years, he writes 14 epistles. Now, if you do the maths, that works out to be about 0.4 of a book per year. He wasn't a prolific writer. And the reason I say this is quite simply because a lot of scholars today are prolific writers. And I can think of one scholar who's written over 150 books over 60 years. And yet Paul, over 35 years, would write 0.4 of a book per year. Not even half a book per year. You see, Paul was a soul winner. Paul would be on the go from the moment he was called to the moment he would die. In fact, the word gospel not only means good news, but the first two words of gospel are go, go, do something. Be ready in season and out of season. So I think it's quite interesting when we look at Paul, that he would tell you to follow him as he followed Christ, and yet he wouldn't spend more than half a year writing And yet he would spend most of his free time traveling around the Roman Empire, collecting air miles and winning souls to the Lord. Of course, I'm being slightly sarcastic with the air miles. But my point is, he was busy. And that's a great blessing. That's a great example for you and I. Behold that thought. I might come back and offer some more to that. Three. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For by occupation they were tent makers. Now Paul would tell us from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that as an evangelist, as a full-time evangelist, he had the right to be supported full-time with financial gifts, of course. And yet he deliberately refused to receive gifts because he thought he would be condemned for doing so. He thought people would say, there you are, Paul's in it for the money. And yet Peter, James and John, as far as you know, were in the full-time ministry. And that is pretty much... uh, Implied from Acts chapter 6. So you've got the Jerusalem church, which seems to be supported with financial gifts. You've got 8,000 plus people getting saved up until I think it was Acts 5 or 6, which we looked at some weeks ago. And you've got the apostles, Barnabas as well, Thomas, don't forget those men, Philip. I don't think it's likely that Peter and James and John went back to fishing. I won't rule it out, but I think it's quite unlikely. I think they spent their time in the Word of God and in prayer. And they were supported with gifts. But Paul, who represents the Syrian church, Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, wouldn't take financial support. And I think it's interesting because he could have done had he wanted to, but it says he was a tent maker. And uh, it would appear that Aquila and Priscilla, his friends from Rome, especially uh, Aquila, was of the same occupation as Paul. This is a very interesting time in the early church. We're not overly clear how they did function on a day-to-day basis, but uh, let me come back to that point as well. Let's move on, please. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Now, Paul was sent to the Gentiles, and Peter was sent to the Jews, and yet, time after time, Paul would preach to the Jews, and no doubt Peter would be preaching to the Gentiles. They would switch back and forth. You see, Paul was a Jew, and at every given opportunity, he would witness to the Jews. Now, if you are a Catholic and you got saved, you're going to witness to the Catholics. If you were an Anglican and you got saved, you're going to witness to the Anglicans. It's common sense. But it says how he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Apologetics, no doubt, persuading the Jews and the Greeks. The Greeks would be proselytes to Judaism. And they knew Paul. He was well known in Drury. And I have seen some clips online of, Brothers going into places of worship and literally preaching during a service. I'm not sure I particularly agree with that. I think I'd rather stand outside a place of worship and preach those going in and going out. Because those people could quite easily come over to you and say, where do you worship on a Sunday? We're going to come along and preach during one of your services. And you know that uh, such individuals wouldn't be particularly happy with, say, charismatics turning up and preaching during your service or Catholics turning up and preaching during your service. I think it's better to be a bit more discreet and maybe stand outside a church or a mosque, perhaps, or a synagogue and try and give tracks out to those going in. But Paul, being a Jew, had the right to go into a synagogue each Sabbath and preach the word of God. And on top of that, they may have been happy to see him because they would have been been somewhat perplexed by this great man of God. On the one hand, he was from the world of academia and yet he has become a Christian overnight And they want to know more about him. Look at verse 5, please. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Pressed in the spirit. How many times have you been pressed in the spirit? You've gone out and about on your travels and you come across a group of pagans. It may be at a sodomite event. It might be at a pagan event. It may be at an ecumenical event. And you feel pressed in the spirit. In fact, last Sunday, Patrick was in our local town. And uh, it was during the Easter week. And he saw a bishop from the Church of England. And this bishop was cleaning people's shoes. It's a gimmick, of course. It's tradition, of course. There's no scripture for this. And Patrick was pressed in the spirit. He felt convicted. And he walked over to this bishop and he confronted him. He didn't raise his voice, but he was firm with him. And he said, "Uh, are you preaching the gospel? You know, washing people's shoes or cleaning people's shoes is a gimmick. And I've watched this over the years myself. You get all the ecumenical Christians coming into our town and they give out hot cross buns. And I get pressed in the spirit. And I've preached over the years during this event. It convicts me. It grieves me. And Patrick took this bishop to task. And he had a word in his ear, as it were. And he rebuked him. And here, Paul is doing the same. Paul is pressed in the spirit. But this time he's testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Again, salvation starts with the Jews. You get saved, you witness to your friends and family first of all. Then you witness to your workmates. Then you witness to your neighbours. Then it goes further afield. And here Paul is still preaching to the Jews. Because God wants the Jews to be saved. Which as far as I'm concerned, completely rules out Calvinism. Which teaches that God sent his son to die just for the elect. And if you're not one of the elect, you can't be saved. I don't believe that. I believe it's possible for all men everywhere to be saved. And yet you have to personally believe on the Lord in order to be saved. But Christ died for you nevertheless. And that's why time after time Paul, and no doubt Peter, and John and James, and Bartholomew, and Thomas and Philip, would preach to those that they could. So when it says Paul was pressed in the spirit, I can completely understand what this means. And testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ, the Messiah. Of course you know some of the Jews would receive it, others would reject it. Look at 6. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. He's saying, You want to reject Christ? That's fine. I'm now free of your blood. I am blameless of your blood. And yet Christ died for this group of people. You were told back in Matthew 27 how the Jews would be mocking the Lord and they would say, Let his blood be on us and on our children. And his blood was on them and on their children. He died for their sins. But like the crowd in First Peter chapter 2, I think it is, it says how the false brethren would deny the Lord that bought them. They would perish. They would die in their sins because they would reject Christ's atonement. But one more time, it says how they opposed themselves and blasphemed. And I've heard people blaspheme my Saviour many a day. They walk past me on the street and they say, Oh my, J.C., Other times they laugh in our faces. But it says how Paul shook his raiment. Now, back in the Old Testament, you get a picture with King David, I think it was, when Absalom has tried to overthrow him. And David goes into a meltdown. And it says how David ripped his clothes. He tore his raiment along with his wise men, his men of war. That was a picture of grief. And many times in scripture, the Jews would rip their clothing. I think Moses would do it along with Joshua. In fact, from memory, the high priest, when he was interrogating the Lord, ripped his raiment, his clothing. He wasn't allowed to do that, incidentally. The word of God told the high priest he wasn't to rip his clothing. Now, we know that with the high priest, it was theatrics. He wasn't really upset uh, that Christ was claiming to be the Messiah. He was more worried about losing his power and his authority. You get that from John chapter 11. But here, Paul doesn't rip his clothing. It says how he shook his raiment. It's a picture of contempt. And you get that back in the Gospels where the Lord told you to dust off your shoes. If uh, you a group of people would reject the Gospel and uh, move on to the next town. There's always more fish in the sea. But what really grabs me from verse 6 one more time is how Paul, after shaking his raiment to express disgust and contempt, says unto this group, your blood be upon your own heads. Imagine saying that to somebody today wasn't saying that to a Jew today, or a Catholic, or a Mormon, or a Muslim, or a Mason, or an atheist, or an evolutionist. They'd be shot. Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I would go unto the Gentiles. Yes, he would go to the Gentiles, and yet, knowing Paul as I do, he would still preach to the Jews, as and when he could. But it goes back to my initial point that Paul's recipients could have been saved had they wanted to be saved. I believe that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. I make no apologies for that. But I don't believe in what's called universal salvation. I don't think just because Christ died for everybody and everything, I should say, that everybody and everything is going to be saved. No, you have to believe. And that's where the evangelist comes in to preach the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. Because people have to hear it in order to believe it, in order to be saved. There's no automatic entrance into heaven. But let's move on, please. Verse 7. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice. One that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Like you find back in Mark chapter 1. He speaks about the Lord going into a synagogue. And he comes across an unclean spirit. And he sets this man free of this unclean spirit. And it says he walked out of the synagogue and into Peter's house. And it tells us how Peter's mother-in-law was sick of a fever. And I made the case when I went through uh, Mark's Gospel last year, I think it was from memory, that that spirit went from the synagogue into Peter's house. Because Peter's house joined hard to the synagogue. I think Peter was a religious man pre his conversion. He wasn't saved, of course, until he was a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say this as a quick footnote, that from my understanding of the Scriptures, nobody is born again until probably Acts chapter 1. When the Holy Ghost came and the apostles. But the apostles are saved pre-Acts chapter 1. By receiving an imputed righteousness. But the new birth doesn't really uh, start until Christ has died on the cross. But this man in justice. One that worships God. Whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Paul must have known this individual. And he goes in and witnesses to him. But look at verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptised. Christmas, a chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. It's like the Philippian jailer back in Acts chapter 16. You believe on the Lord and then you are baptised. And what I want to repeat from my earlier study from Acts 16 is that what you can't get from this is infant baptism. I know Catholics and some Anglicans think that children, infants, should be baptised, christened, as they refer to it, and they use verses such as this to justify it. But you are saved by believing, and you are condemned by not believing. A child cannot believe. A child cannot not believe either. It's, fair to me, it's obvious to me that Christmas would have had people in his home that were old enough to comprehend the gospel. He believes, along with all of his house, that were old enough to comprehend the gospel, and then they are baptised. That's the correct order. You believe, you get saved, and then you are baptised. Sola fide as the reformers called it. Nine. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak. And hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. The Lord's foreknowledge, of course, and he knew who would be for him and who would be against him. You get that very clearly back in the Old Testament, when Elijah is praying to the Lord, he is distraught. He says, Lord, they've destroyed your temples, they've killed your people. There's apostasy left, right and centre. Like Jeremiah, he would say how he would worship the Lord on his own. He wouldn't sit with the mockers. And the Lord says to Elijah, don't worry, I've reserved 7,000 men that haven't kneeled to Baal. They haven't worshipped Baal. I've got 7,000 in reserve who haven't turned from me. They are saved. But what is of interest to me is this term, be not afraid. Fear is natural. The Bible says that uh, the fear of man bringeth a snare. And that's true. But whoso puts their faith or trust in the Lord shall be safe. So if you are fearful of man, try and quit it. The Lord will tell the apostles not to be fearful, not to worry. And yet we are only human. if, If we're saved, we still have fallen bodies. Our bodies are still corrupt. We still live in a fallen world. And that's why I don't believe in sinless perfection. I think that all of us are prone to worry. And sometimes that can become a real problem for us you can be crippled by fear but you've got to conquer it you were told not to put any confidence in the flesh you've got to be a full conqueror he says how we are more than conquerors through christ jesus our lord in fact christ would tell you back in john 14 let not your hearts be troubled you believe in god believe also in me in my father's house and many mansions if we were not so, i told you i go to prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you i will come and receive unto myself that where i am that you may be also let not your heart be troubled don't be fearful Quit worrying. And yet, Paul, he was just like you and I. He would worry. He would have anxiety attacks. And the Lord knows that. And he says, look, Paul, don't be fearful. Don't worry. Speak and don't hold your peace. Ten, one more time. For I am with thee. What a great thing to tell somebody. For I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Paul's days are numbered. Like the Lord's days are numbered. You couldn't breathe in the Lord until he said you could breathe on him. There's an account back in the Gospel of Luke. When the Lord went into a synagogue, preached to them. And it says they were infuriated and they tried to kill him. They tried to push him off a steep hill, a mountain area from memory. And it says how he went out of their midst. He completely disappeared from them. They wanted to kill him, but his time wasn't up. I say you couldn't breathe on him. You couldn't even give him a bad look until his time was up. And the same was true of Paul. Yes, he would suffer. Yes, he would be whipped many times. He would be shipwrecked. He would be treated with contempt, but his life was safe. He was preserved. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. That's wonderful. For I have much people in this city. They're going to receive the message, Paul. They're going to get saved. And you are going to be blessed for the next 18 months. Look at verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. 18 months of Bible studies. Just imagine that. The greatest Christian that ever lived He's going to spend 18 months teaching the Word of God to you. I would have paid good money for that. My goal has been to record Acts of the Apostles in 12 months. It's not impossible for me to reach that goal, but it's somewhat unlikely. And I'm thinking to myself that it may take around, or up to, at the furthest, 18 months. At the most it will be 18 months. And here Paul will spend 18 months teaching the Word of God to this group of recipients. What a great time this must have been for the early church. 18 and Galileo was a deputy of Achaia. The Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. What do you expect? Paul's preaching the word of God for 18 months. He may be doing street preaching during that time, and the Jews aren't going to sit back and do nothing. They're going to come against you. This is the power of the enemy. If you are born again, if you are out and about for the Lord, the devil is going to come at you. And not only is he going to come against you, the old nature is going to come against you. You have to fight as a Christian. And that fight will be with you from the moment you are saved to the moment you die. You can't be passive. You can't be indifferent. And it's hard because the flesh is very powerful. On top of that, the enemy is uh, is equally as powerful many times as the flesh. But it says how the Jews made insurrection. That's a word we still use today, insurrection. Insurrection. Like a riot, with one accord against Paul, and brought him to the judgment seat, like the judgment seat of Christ, saying, "This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law." That term, "fellow," you know, "Hey, fella, what you doing?" It's used today in a sort of, in a sort of slang way. You know, I know a fellow on my manner. It's very sort of Cockney language for those in England. This fellow said this. This fellow did that. I know a fellow here. I know a fellow there not a sort of term i would use particularly often but it says this fellow such contempt you can just feel it can't you this fellow persuadeth men to worship god contrary to the law well of course you're not saved by keeping the law it says how moses came by the law but grace and truth came by jesus christ john chapter one we were told in matthew 11 how all the law and the prophets were until john the baptist so you see with john's arrival and death that pictures the end of the old testament that pitches the end of the law whereas christ pitches the commencements of the new testament grace but if i know paul that's not technically true he wouldn't be rubbishing the law he'd be preaching that you're saved by grace and that the law cannot save you it can only condemn you it can only convict you of your sins and yet the law was used to bring sinners to christ the law remains in place to bring sinners to christ and i use the law to bring sinners to Christ. I use the Ten Commandments to, to bring sinners to Christ. And I will use the Ten Commandments to show people that they're no good. And yet here it goes on to say in uh, verse 14. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth. Galileo said unto the Jews. If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness. O ye Jews reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law. Look ye to it. For I'll be no judge of such matters. That's fair enough. We don't want people to get involved in our beliefs. I don't want somebody from town hall to uh, critique me, to interrogate me about what I believe. It's not their business what I believe. I don't care what they believe. So why should, they, why should I care what they believe about me? And yet this man, Galio, or Galio, a very well-to-do man, like a governor or a councillor, doesn't really want to get involved. He's a typical bureaucrat. And yet, I'm not going to be overly hard on him. I think, to be fair to him, he doesn't want to get involved with religious matters. It's none of his business. In fact, you were told in 1 Corinthians 6 that saved people shouldn't take their affairs to unsaved people. Saved people shouldn't sue one another in secular courts. So I can sympathize with Galileo, or Galileo, have you used to pronounce it. And at the same time, the Jews are wanting to kill Paul. The Jews wanted to silence their Old Testament prophets, this is very sad because they are the chosen race. They are beloved for their father's sakes. And yet, for most of their existence, they've been on the wrong side of history. They would kill their prophets. Uh, many a time, as their kings would worship false deities. Look at Solomon. Even David would fall into the flesh many a time. And yet, one of the great blessings and one of the great proofs that God is God is the fact that the Jews are still with us to this day. They haven't been wiped out. 16, and he drove them from the judgment seat. He doesn't want to get involved with their affairs like Pilate washing his hands of the Lord. But I think what's really interesting to me, and I'll just offer some final thoughts before I close today's broadcast, is how fast this is moving. Paul would travel from here to there, and he would preach, and he would stay put, and he wouldn't write an encyclopedia of books. He would write 14 epistles in 35 years, which, as I say, is around 0.4 of a book per year. And yet some scholars have written hundreds of books, and have never street preached, have never gone onto the streets, have never witnessed to unsaved people. And yet they expect people to go to them to hear the gospel, whereas they should be going to them to preach the gospel. And Paul, does credit, was a jack of all trades. Paul could preach, he could teach, and he could write. I think if you are a brother in the Lord, you should be able to do some of those things. Now, I'm not going to say that all brothers should be street preaching. I got an email from somebody last week saying that I shouldn't be overly emphasising that brothers should preach. That not all brothers have got the gift of preaching that's that's true but you don't know where you got it until you try because you may have the gift to street preach and unless you've tried it how would you know but i took the brother's uh comment and yes he's you know it is true not all men are called to street preach i don't think i've ever said that but what i have said over the years and i'll say it again this morning before i close is that all brothers should be able to share the gospel on a regular basis i think that is something we should all be doing you know, we're all commissioned to get souls saved but To say that all men should be street preaching, no, I won't say that, but uh, all men should be able to open their mouths at a moment's notice and preach the gospel, I believe that is very much the case. So there you are, Uh, Paul still preaching to the Jews during Sabbath days, as you would expect him to do, and uh, there were no Gentiles keeping the Sabbath, please keep that in mind. I have to keep repeating myself on this because there are still many groups today that think the Sabbath is for the Gentiles, that it's somehow for the church, it's not Paul will preach to the Jews as when he can. He will go from synagogue to synagogue. He will call on Jews to repent. He will present Christ to them as their Messiah. And when they turn from his words of exhortation, verse 6, he will shake his raiment. He won't tear it. He will control his temper, something all men should do. And he will say quite clearly to them, OK, guys, your blood is on your own heads. When you stand the great white throne judgment, you can't say I didn't tell you because I did tell you. The same is true of me when I stand with my Lord at the great white throne judgment as an observer and I see all the people I've witnessed to over the years coming up to be judged. They can't point their finger at me and say he didn't warn me about hell because I did warn them about hell. I am clean, verse 6, from henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. We can take that and apply it today with the sense of that we don't need to keep going over the same ground with the same people. Never cast your pearls before swine. There are many more fish in the sea. And I guess the main verse that I'll Read again, and a close will be from verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing, believed and were baptised. Music to my ears. They believed, they got baptised, and they passed from death unto life. We'll pick it up next week from Acts 18, verse 27.